Good morning. Good to see you all in your smiling, masked faces. Uh, welcome to Mosaic. My name is Eric. Again, just so happy to be here with you all, gifted to just the chance to be uh, your pastor. Uh, why don't you stand with me for the reading of God's word? Today, we're going to be reading out of Colossians 1, 24 through 28. And uh, woohoo, that's my wife's favorite book. Uh, now I rejoice in my sufferings for your sake, and in my flesh I am filling up what is lacking in Christ's afflictions for the sake of his body, that is the church, of which I became a minister according to the stewardship from God that was given to me for you, to make the word of God fully known, the mystery hidden for ages and generations, but now revealed to his saints. To them God chose to make known how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that he powerfully works within me. Would you pray with me? God, we thank you. You are here. And for those of us who are followers of you, we have Christ in us the hope of glory. So God, I pray right now as we toil for you as I preach your word in order to present your people mature in you, God, that you would just speak through me. You would honor the preparation time. And God, you just give us all open hearts and minds to receive from you the word that you have planned for us today. In your name we pray, amen. You can take a seat I have the privilege of being the dad of four amazing kids, Joshua, who is up here playing keyboards, Rebecca, Andrew, my six-year-old, and Mariah, my three-year-old, and Andrew is just a hoot. If you haven't gotten to know Andrew, my six-year-old, that is Andrew. This is Andrew. Um, Andrew is always changing, literally, his clothes. Uh, most times, he runs around without a shirt on, but if he does have a shirt on, then usually he also has perhaps a boa constrictor and a uh, explorer's hat and, you know, maybe a, uh, a bow and arrow. Or sometimes he's Spider-Man, you know, with like a lightsaber or something. And uh, that's just Andrew. Andrew is always changing. Andrew is just dressing up in uh, imagination. That's who Andrew is. A couple years ago, Andrew, on the first day of 3K, uh, it's kind of hard to read, but it says, when I grow up, I want to be a lizard. Okay, okay, you do you, buddy. Uh, now, I love this here. Andrew, what do you want to be? A canine unit detective. All right, uh, he's moving on from wanting to be a lizard to a uh, canine um, uh, detective. But Andrew has this fierce imagination, and he's just always playing, and he's imagining. And my parents tell me I was a lot like Andrew when I was a kid, always imagining things, just dreaming about different things. But... As I've watched my son imagine being a lizard or a canine detective or being Spider-Man or whatever it might be, I've realized I've lost my imagination. I, I, I don't have that same imagination that I used to have when I was a little kid. Part of today, I want you to recapture your imagination and to know that we get to write the future. Now, some of my Calvinists in the rooms are kind of shaking a little bit. But God 
invites us to work with him to write the future. See, the future is open, and we get to make decisions to honor God with our lives. We get to partner with God and decide who are we becoming. See, I hear sometimes that youth rallies and different things are like, let's make history, and it's like, that's impossible. <laughs> like, history's in the past. You can't make history. It gets done, but we get to make the future. We get to make the future. And today, what I want us to know is that we are all on a journey of becoming someone. Who are you becoming? Who are you becoming? Theologically, you know, I I don't really believe in the Wesleyan idea that you can achieve sinless perfection this side of heaven. However, I do remember my grandma Lindine, my dad's mom, and I don't think she sinned since the 70s. So... The reality is we can be on this journey and become better than we are. But here's what I've learned. Here's a chart, and you kind of see your age here, starting at birth through 70. The brain's ability to change in response to experiences, we see up here at birth and at two, almost an infinite amount of ability to change. Andrew's right about here, although he's probably still a little higher. But as you get older, your ability they call it the plasticity of your neurons, starts to get more settled. And as you get older, the amount of effort it takes to change goes higher. When we're much younger, it doesn't take much energy for Andrew to imagine that he's Spider-Man or that he's going to grow up to be a lizard. That's just, it's just natural to who he is. But if he charts the trajectory of most people... It'll be harder and harder for him to have that imagination. And it's going to take more and more effort to change. doesn't mean it's impossible. It just means it's going to require more and more effort. And I think we all know this to be true. When we meet someone in their 80s, it's usually one of two things, right? It's either someone who's so sweet, so kind, that you know you're meeting a saint, I think of my grandma, Lindine. She just exuded goodness, gentleness, self-control, kindness, patience, long-suffering. Or you meet someone in their 80s, and they're narcissistic, they're self-centered, they are, are critical thinking, because we're all on a journey of becoming someone. And when we get into our 80s, our 90s, that plasticity of personality is really set in a lot of ways. So who are you becoming? We're all on a journey of becoming someone. And if you plotted out the trajectory of your life, and you met your future self, you at 85, you at 90, would you like that person? Is that someone you'd want to hang out with, to sit down by the fire and hear their stories? Or when you plot out your life, you're like, I don't know. If, if I continue on who I am and my bad habits and kind of who I am becomes magnified over the next couple decades, and you think, man, I don't think I want to hang out with that person. What do we do about that? Well, I grew up in a small Pentecostal church, talk about this right here in Maple Grove, and it was great. 
we'd get hyped up a lot and we'd talk about relying on the Holy Spirit for change. But the problem was, over years, I wouldn't always see that change in people's lives. The adults that I would observe were still gossips. They were still unkind. They were still impatient. And I thought, maybe relying only on the Holy Spirit for change doesn't work. An interesting side note about kind of overly Pentecostal churches is neuroscience has discovered that a big emotional moment can trick your brain into thinking you've actually done something. In fact, when you were just a passive spectator instead. Uh, this is like uh, football fans, right? Uh, when, you know, the Vikings had the Minneapolis America. How do you remember that? And we, we threw the ball and Diggs caught it and it was this amazing. And what did we, most of us do? We, we jumped up and we're like, yeah, we did it! Like, you didn't do anything. Like, you ate a hot dog and drank a beer, you know? Like, you didn't do it. You were a passive, pe- a passive spectator, you know, probably critiquing professional athletes. But something happens in our brains in those big emotional moments, we actually think we did something. And so, if you're in a church service that always just ends with this high note, yeah, God, go, 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 it actually can trick your brain into thinking you've done something for your spiritual growth when actually you've just been a passive spectator. And so then I went to go work at Eagleburg Church in 2001, and I saw hundreds come to know Jesus, and it was amazing. And basically our philosophy of change when I worked there was that information plus inspiration plus willpower would equal change. Let's give people really great practical talks, three steps on a better marriage, four ways on to make friends, five steps to have the best finances, inspirational music. We tell people, Add in your willpower, and that will equal change. Problem is, willpower runs out. You know, how many of you made the dumbest decision of your life at 9.30 a.m.? Not many of us, right? Because we start off the day pretty good. Like, like when I'm trying to lose weight and I'm trying to eat healthy, like, I usually start the day pretty good. I eat a good breakfast. Lunch is fine. If I can make it through those afternoon hours with my Red Bull or coffee, you know, maybe if I have really good willpower, I can make it to dinner. But then what happens? I got to drive a kid up to Rogers for theater. I get back, and one kid doesn't want to go to bed. Another one doesn't want to brush their teeth. And by the time they're in bed, all my brain is thinking is carbs, carbs, carbs. Anyone else with there? Yeah? Yeah. Because your willpower runs out, this doesn't work. Because our willpower is finite. Information plus inspiration plus willpower doesn't work. Then I was introduced to like Calvinism or Reformed theology, and you go something like this, you're a depraved slug, Jesus died for you, and he won the victory. So now we gather together on Sunday mornings to celebrate Jesus' victory. And over time, Jesus is going to change you and grow the fruit of spirit in your life. The problem is that those Sunday gatherings can produce consumers of Jesus' merit rather than followers of the way. Passive spectators who just celebrate what Jesus did, but then go on with their life and make no changes the rest of the week. You sin and sin, and you're not changing, and then you're reminded on Sunday morning again of how good Jesus is, but you're just consuming Jesus' merit rather than following the way of Jesus. But here's something I've learned over the last 41 years of my life, 20 years of pastoring is that years of following Jesus don't automatically make you a kind, loving, mature, patient person. I know 
a number of 50 and 60-year-olds that have been walking with Jesus for decades, and honestly, they aren't very kind, which is a fruit of the Spirit. They aren't very patient. They aren't very gentle. Honestly, they don't look more like Jesus than they did 25 years ago. Some are Reformed, some are Pentecostals, some are Cessationist Baptists. Regardless of their theology, something isn't working. So if that doesn't work, maybe secular culture has the answers. Secular culture tells us, you do you. What's most important is just to pursue pleasure. Don't harm others. But other than that, whatever gives you pleasure, do that. As long You can believe whatever you want to believe as long as you don't believe you have a corner of truth on the market. Secular culture tells us that humanity is just another species of animal. Secular culture tells us that all we need to solve the world's problems is to get rid of religion and to educate people. Let go of the past and embrace progressiveness. But where has that led us as a culture? To a world that has massive problems with anxiety and depression, an epidemic of people abusing opioids, overdosing, suicide, has more information and more education helped us become better people over the last hundred years. Well, I think just peek at the internet, go to any comment section, look at Facebook, and the answer is a resounding no. See, a hundred years ago in the 1920s, the resounding philosophy was that religion was not the answer and we need more information to educate and that will eliminate all of the world's problems. But then becomes highly educated Adolf Hitler. Osama bin Laden, educated in the West, planning some of the worst attacks on our country ever. Harvard graduate and mathematics professor Theodore Kaczynski, better known as the Unabomber. See, more information, more education hasn't brought the change that people thought in the 1920s was going to happen. And for the last hundred years, we realized simply educating people, taking religion out of our culture is not the answer. Perhaps this morning you'd find yourself in this category. Someone who's suspicious of religion and you've been living a life of you do you. I'm so glad that you're here today. Perhaps you're watching online. How's that working for you? How's your soul? If you don't believe in a soul, how is the interior of your life? A lot of people realize the grass isn't greener in a secular humanist world the survival of the fittest, which is born in this idea that, an, that humans are just animals. But are we? I think we know at a deep level that isn't true. See, what do we say when we've been in the suburbs, when we've been in the city too long? Man, I just need to get into nature. See, we're the only species that has such a profound impact on our surroundings that we know we need to get into nature for the good of our souls. Humans are just animals, that there's no higher standard or, or moral authority I don't think so, because what do we do when someone is being excessively cruel? We say they are being inhumane. They're not acting as a human should. Do you know what orcas do? Last summer, Chris and I got to go out to Pacific Northwest, and we got to see some orcas, some killer whales in the wild. But you know what orcas will do? They'll find a seal. They'll play with that seal by tossing it into the air and catching it. They will hold it underground, underwater, until it can't breathe. They will play with it until finally it drowns, then they eat it. But no one will look at that orca and say, how inhumane, how in-orca-like, right? No one looks at a tiger 
tearing down you know, a gazelle or a lion or whatever and says, oh, how inhumane. We know that's just the way they're created to be. But when someone walks in with a gun and opens fire in a public place, we know that's not right. We say that's inhumane because we know at our core there is a higher standard for us to live. We know there's a way we were created to live. And so we conclude there must be some kind of higher moral standard. The last hundred years of secular humanism has shown us that that doesn't work. Communism, which embraced the principles of secular humanism, a hundred million people killed. You want to talk about how religion has killed people? Secular humanism, a hundred million in the last hundred years. Something isn't working. And so if relying on the Holy Spirit for change doesn't work, and if do better, try harder to use your willpower to change doesn't work, and if theology of don't worry about it, God's just going to change you doesn't work, then what is the answer, and where do we turn? I think the answer is to look at the example of what humanity is truly supposed to look like. Jesus came as God, yes, fully God, but also fully human. Jesus is the example of what humanity is supposed to look like. He's the picture of what we are looking at. And at his deepest desire is that we would change and become like him. Let's go back to Colossians 1. It says, To them God chose to make known among how great among the Gentiles are the riches of the glory of this mystery, which is Christ in you, the hope of glory. Him we proclaim, warning everyone and teaching everyone with all wisdom that we may present everyone mature in Christ. For this I toil, struggling with all his energy that a powerful works within me. Jesus wants us to mature in him. Well, how do we do that? How do we change? How do we become mature in Christ if willpower and working hard and letting go and trusting God isn't enough? Well, studying change theory, change takes three things. Number one, you have to have a vision. You have to have something that you are looking at to say, that's what I want to become. For us as followers of Jesus, we look at Christ. Christ was courageous. He went to the cross to bear the weight that we could not bear. He was kind. He saw the unlovable. He saw those afflicted with different skin conditions like leprosy who were outcasts. And what did Jesus do? He would touch them. And instead of being infected by their disease, he would infect them with his goodness and holiness and they'd be healed. Jesus saw women in a culture that weren't educated, that weren't seen. Jesus said, let the children come to me when they were set aside and they were second-class citizens. Jesus is our vision of what we want to be. Change requires intention. We have to say, this is something I want to do. You have to choose to say, I'm going to model my life in a way that I want to become like Christ. It's not just going to unintentionally happen. It has to intentionally happen, and then you need a means of doing it. And that is what I think has been missing. In all too many churches I've worked in, I think a means has been missing in this church. And that's, as we wrap up today, that's what I want to talk about. See, transformation takes a lot more than just listening to a good teaching on Sunday morning or reading the verse of the day or some devotional thoughts on Instagram. See, following Jesus is something that you do. You're not a passive spectator. You are active in this. See, the ancient Christians knew there's a lot more 
to fall in the way of Jesus than just gathering on a Sunday. You know, the ancient followers of Jesus actually weren't even known as Christians. They were called followers of the way, the way of Jesus. They were disciples who followed their rabbi, Jesus. The word Christian only occurs three times in the New Testament, but this word Talmudim, a disciple, apprentice, someone who follows after someone who models their life, is found 268 times in the New Testament. This won't just happen. You have to put it into practice. The goal of being an apprentice of Jesus is transformation. If we play our lives out, we want to be that 85-year-old that is kind and gentle and compassionate and loving that people want to be around. We don't want to be the bitter, narcissistic, cynical one. The insider lingo for this is spiritual formation. Here's how Dallas Willard, one of the fathers kind of spiritual formation, puts it. He says, spiritual formation in the Christian tradition is a process of increasingly being possessed and permeated by the character traits of Jesus as we walk in the easy yoke of discipleship with Jesus, our teacher. See, unintentional spiritual formation, which I think has been kind of the dominant discipleship strategy of the evangelical church, is not working. We need a better way. We need intentional spiritual formation. The idea that you don't need to do anything to change to become more like Jesus is simply not true. This is the idea of just let go, let God. That is so bad. That's the Matrix uh, theory of spiritual change. Remember that Matrix movie? They're actually making a new one. But in the first one, came out in 1999. They were living in this construct by the machines. And, you know, they'd be like, uh, I need to download onto how to fly a helicopter. You get it. Instantly, you know how to fly a helicopter. Or instantly, you know how to fly, you know, uh, fight kung fu or whatever it might be. And some of us think maybe that's how it's going to work. It's like, God, my kids are driving me crazy. Give me an instant download of patience. Whoop. I wish it happened that way, but it doesn't. God isn't just going to miraculously drop in these spiritual fruits and one day you're just Mother Teresa or Billy Graham. I wish it worked that way, but it doesn't. It takes what Eugene Peterson, one of my favorite authors and pastor, says, a long obedience in the same direction. It takes day by day walking with Jesus, being shaped by him. Change the joint effort between you and God. God has a part to play, but you and I have a part to play as well. If that makes you nervous, I love this quote by Dallas Willard I've shared before. Grace isn't opposed to effort. Grace is opposed to earning. We do not earn our status or favor with God. That was done on the cross through Jesus Christ. We do not have to earn anything, but grace isn't opposed to effort. Perhaps you've read the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7. It's this great message by Jesus. I think maybe it's multiple sermons put together, but Jesus is really talking about how to live in the way of Jesus and the kingdom life. And he, he ends with this powerful story that the foolish man builds his life on the sand, and when the, the wind and the waves come, it, it is shattered and broke apart. But those who hear my words and put them into practice is like the wise man who built his house on the rock, and when the rain and the winds came, it stood firm. And then Jesus, he drops the mic and he walks off stage. Can you imagine if Jesus said that? If you put my works and my words into practice and those who do them is like the wise man who built his house on the rock and when the winds came and the winds raged, it didn't, it didn't fall. And then Jesus said, but don't worry, don't worry. It's not about doing, it's not about works because I'm, I'm gonna die on the cross and so I'm gonna do it all for you. Don't worry about it. That would kind of ruin his sermon, right? See, Jesus, yes, 
He's going to earn it for us. We don't have to earn it, but his teachings are not opposed to effort. Somehow in the evangelical church the last number of decades, somehow good works has become like a bad word. It's not about works. It's about Jesus. It's for salvation, yes. But good works are good, amen? We're here for good. There's a whole way of living like Jesus. We have to partner with him. And the way of Jesus is not easy. Let me just say that. You don't have to earn anything. It is all through Jesus on the cross. But if you want to follow your life, if, if you want to orient it around Jesus, you will change how you are living. But I want to ask you, how is it working for you right now? Living for yourself with no higher standard for those of you who are not followers of Jesus. See, I find immense comfort in knowing I don't have to have all the answers. Jesus has shown me in his word the way to live, the way towards life. It's by surrendering my will to him. And when you look at that, there's a certain sexual ethic on how we're supposed to live. Jesus says, don't get divorced. Jesus says, sex is between one man and one woman forever. Whoa, that's controversial, Eric. That's hard. It gets worse. He says, your bodies don't even belong to you. They belong to Jesus. Everything belongs to him. And then Jesus talks about your money. It's like, whoa, Eric, you're talking about sex and money. This is way too uncomfortable now. He says, I want you to live a generous lifestyle. That you believe that everything that comes into your hands is a gift from God. And God says, you can spend 90%, but give 10% back to me. And you're going to push back and be like, yeah, but the tithe is an Old Testament concept, Eric. Okay, fine. That's a good starting point. Be more generous than that. See, Jesus is going to get in your business. He's going to care about your browser history. He's going to care about your sexual ethic. He's going to care about your money. He's going to care about how you work. Do you take time off? Or do you work 24-7 because you think it's all about you? And what you have to do to get it done rather than trusting in him. And that's something I'm working on in my life. He's going to say, when you mess up with your kids, you ask for forgiveness. That you don't hold a grudge. That he says, hey, if you know there's something between you and someone else, before you come to the altar, before you take communion, before you worship, go make it right with that person. You don't talk to your friends. You make it right with that person. That is what Jesus asks us to live like. It is a high standard, but that is the way towards life and truth. Because when we just live our own way, it's not working. It's not making kinder, compassionate, more gentle, more long-suffering people. And so, we have to have a vision for change, intention, and then means. And that's our job here as and Mosaic is to give you the means to make a change in your life. And so what does spiritual formation look like? Well, I think there's kind of three dominant ways. And number one is biblical teaching. Acts 2.42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to the prayers. My commitment to you is as long as we are a church, as long as God allows us to continue to function, I will do my best to study hard, to be the best preacher and teacher that I can be, to point you towards the way of Jesus, 
to help you become more like him. Number two, we have these community groups. Acts 2, 46 through 47 says this, and day by day, attending the temple together in a large group gathering like this on a Sunday morning, and breaking bread in their homes, which we're going to do on Tuesday nights, Wednesday nights, Thursday nights, the youth group on Sunday nights. They received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having faith with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The people we make a decision to follow Jesus with matter. You can't follow Jesus alone. Jesus had disciples, not a disciple. You can't practice the almost 50 one another commands without one another's in your life. I believe you are being disobedient to Jesus' teaching if you're doing life by yourself and not with other followers of Jesus. Community does two things. It brings exposure and encouragement. See, community holds up a mirror to our lives and says, oh, wow, I'm not as spiritually mature as I thought because that person is driving me crazy and I realize I need to be sanctified in that. It's like getting married. You thought you were a great person and then you realize, man, I'm a selfish jerk. Then you have kids and you really realize that. You're like, they need me again? Stop touching me. Why are you always leaning on me, kids? Right, Kristen? They always want to be touched. And you realize, man, I have a lot further to go. But community also gives encouragement. It's to say, hey, I see how God's working in your life. Hey, my brother Josh, I see how three years ago you were at a certain place in life where you wanted this job or this lifestyle. And then Josh tells me about an opportunity to get what he thought maybe was his dream job. But he says, no, I'm happier as a stay-at-home dad, volunteering here at Mosaic Church. This is what I'm called to do. And I say, Josh, there's spiritual growth in your life. And I love the man you're becoming and the dad and husband that you are. That's what community does. It says, Eric, you, you could be a jerk and a high D on the disc scale, but I see over the last five years who you've been becoming, and I appreciate that. Community holds up that mirror to say, hey, God is good. God has been changing you. That is why we need community in our life. But simply having community with other followers of Jesus isn't enough. And I want to admit something, that I was wrong. When we started this church, we said we can't do all kinds of things. We're going to, have, we're going to do two things really well, hopefully. Sunday morning services and small groups. We've talked a lot. Rose don't know. You need to be in circles. You need to be in a small group. Discipleship's going to happen in small groups. Change is going to happen in small groups. And you know what? I was wrong. The last five years, I haven't seen the spiritual growth, discipleship, like I thought I would see. It's not enough to simply gather together and perhaps watch a teaching on the Bible or something. I've seen too many people get saved, join a small group, walk away from their wife, go back to heroin, walk away from serving Jesus. It's not working. When I see a whole small group of Mosaic people leave the church, and not attend anywhere. 
it's not working. And I thought just Christians being in proximity to each other and opening the Bible would be enough, but the reality is I was wrong. It's not working. And so we have to be more intentional with our small groups because it's not working. And so that's where we have to practice the way of Jesus together. Our community groups are going to be more intentional to say, together we're living out the way of Jesus. Here's what Jesus tells us, Matthew 11. He says, come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you. That was a, uh, a rabbi's way of saying his teaching, his, his way of living, and learn from me. For I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. And at the end of his life, this is one of our theme verses of the church. Jesus is telling his disciples, therefore go and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and of the Son and of the Holy Spirit. We've baptized 49 people in our five years of the church. Praise God for that. But Jesus goes on to say, teaching them to obey everything I've commanded you. And surely I'm with you always to the very end of the age. And I think we've been missing that a little bit. It's not about trying, it's about training. And so we need to be training each other. Because unintentional spiritual formation is not working. Just gathering together for community and a meal and watching a Bible project video is not working. What would happen if I asked Josh, my son, to play Mozart's Requiem in D? And I said, just try really hard. If I prayed over him, he wouldn't be able to do it. There are certain songs we could do as a worship team. He's not ready to play yet. Because he has a part to play. He has to grow in his skills. And as followers of Jesus, we have a part to play in becoming more like Jesus. The practices of Jesus help us to live like him. The things we do, they do something to us. They get in us and they change us. And that's going to be the dominant theme of our community groups this next year. Is to say, what does Jesus teach? How do we live that out together as we come together on Tuesday nights and Wednesday nights and Thursday nights? Is transformation possible? If you've been divorced, if you were abused as a kid, if you are a type A difficult personality, is change possible? I believe with all my heart that yes. But it's going to take some effort. It's going to take some intention, a vision of Jesus. And as a church, we're going to give you the means to do that together. If you want to experience change and transformation and be that picture of that 85-year-old that you see, it's going to take a lifetime of intentional practice of walking in the way of Jesus in community with others. As a church, there's a lot of things we do well. But where, where are we at our best? On Friday, Kristen and Mariah and Katie and her daughter dropped off donuts for the high school teachers and staff. And that's amazing that we can bless the teachers and staff here at our church. But is that our church at our best? I think that's really good, but I don't think it's at our, at our best. As a church, we've, we've partnered with Cross Food Services, which helps give food to people who uh, 
uh, are food insecure and don't have the means to, to uh, shop for the best groceries, uh, to provide diapers, to provide presents at Christmas time, to lots of services. And yesterday, a, a number of us gathered for the Osteo Parade, and we said, hey, we're here for good, and we're promoting cross and getting to know them and, and, and partnering with them. And that's a really good thing, but is that our church at its best? I, I don't think so. And I love our worship team, and I think they're phenomenally gifted and and offering a worship service, is that our church at its best? I don't think so. I think the church, I think our church at its best is when lost people are found by Jesus. When someone says, hey, I got some questions. Wendy, Lindsay, can we talk? And that person crosses the line of faith and a community surrounds her she starts to fall in love with Jesus and follow the way of Jesus. I think that is the church at its best. When lives are transformed, when disciples are being made, when then people are being taught the way of Jesus, that they don't have to hold on to their past, that they can live in freedom and newness of life, that is the church at its best, and that is what we're going to do this next year. Amen? We want people to know there's a better way to live, because I don't believe secular humanism has the answers. To say there's no higher standards above us, that we're just some animal, that is not working. Simply saying that education is going to make the world better, look at the last hundred years, it's not working. And so there has to be a better way. There has to be a higher standard. There has to be something that we were created to be in the image of God because we know it. When we see those planes crash into the Twin Towers, we say, how inhumane, how could they do that? Because there's something inside of us that tells us there's a way we're supposed to live. And that way is the way of Jesus. And Jesus came to show us, hey, you don't have to earn it. I'm going to die on the cross for your sins, so you don't have to earn salvation. You can be made right with God in an instant by believing in Jesus, by trusting in him. But then he said, you know what, though? It's going to take a lifetime of walking in my way, of taking my yoke upon you. You're going to have to be intentional about this. If you want to change and become that which I've declared you to be, which is holy. That is what sanctification is all about. That is what the saints for the first hundred, you know, first 1,500 years, 1,800 years, they knew that. The desert fathers, they knew. I'm instantly made right with God, but I have to have these spiritual practices of silence and solitude, of reading God's word, of prayer. And as we do these spiritual practices, then the Holy Spirit becomes the dominant influence in our life and begins to bring change. And as days become weeks, become months, become years, we do find ourselves being changed as we walk in the way of Jesus. And we can look at our lives and say, you know what? I am more kind than I was five years ago. I am more gentle. I am more patient. I am more long-suffering. I have more love and peace in my heart, not simply because I was a passive observer, but because I have a vision of being like Jesus I have an intention to say, yes, that is what I'm going to be. And now in community, I'm going to walk in the way of Jesus. But it won't happen by accident. That is the church at its best. Amen. And so, your next step. Sign up for a community group. I know some of you have reasons to not do it. Sign up for one. You can do it online on our website. There's a community group page. And we're going to figure this out. Because the way we've been in small groups, it's not working. So we're tweaking them. What does that look like exactly? 
I don't know. <laughs> we're going to figure this out together. Here's what it's going to kind of look like. I'm going to invite the band to come on up. Tuesday nights, we're going to gather at someone's house. We're finding that home still. We may, gather, we may have some food, gather as a large group. Perhaps we sing one or two worship songs just to open our hearts, to make the place thin between heaven and earth, hear a little bit of teaching, and then we say, okay, today's spiritual practice, it's reading God's word. All right, now we're going to split up into little groups of two or three people. And you're going to share, hey, do you read God's word on a regular basis? Do you not? And it's okay. Be honest. And then we're going to give you some tips. Here's what I felt, uh, what I found to help me. It's this kind of Bible, this kind of journaling. Uh, Start with a psalm because that's a prayer. Then start with the words of Jesus. Read these things. And every day as you read a psalm, as you read the words of Jesus, as you journal things that you're grateful for, gratitude begins to grow in your heart. As you journal your prayers, you see God moving and answering your prayers, and you grow in the way of Jesus. Then the next week we're going to come back, and we're going to say, how did that go? And you're going to sit face-to-face with someone and say, yeah, I read my Bible one time this week. Okay, how about next week? Can you do it twice? Or, hey, I did it six days this week. That's amazing. Here's what helped me. And we're going to talk to each other. How do we help make these practices something that we're actually doing? We're going to help keep each other accountable. We're going to talk about this. And then say, okay, last week we talked about, you know, reading our Bibles. Now this week we're going to talk about memorizing Scripture to get God's Word into our heart. Psalm 1 says, like a tree planted by water. That's what we want to become. But to get that way, we have to meditate on God's Word day and night. So what does that mean to have God's Word that we're, we're daily thinking about it and we're turning it over over a lifetime? And in our culture today, we don't memorize many things, not even many phone numbers. I have two phone numbers memorized. And so we're going to say, how can we do this? Okay, write down a note card, and when you're on the treadmill, read it over and over again. We're going to put it in your bathroom mirror. And then the next, we're going to come back and say, okay, did you memorize the scripture? Yeah, I did. And we're going to talk to each other. We're talking about sharing our stories, of saying, people can't argue with their story. To say, you know what? Life was like this for me. And I was hopeless, and I was drowning to see him anxiety and depression, but then I came to know Jesus, and life isn't perfect, but now I know that someone is walking with me, and his perfect peace surpasses all understanding, and God has changed my life. And we're going to talk about how you can share your story, how you can invite your your neighbor, your coworker out to coffee, and just share your story to get to know them and and hear their story, share your story. And we're going to do it face-to-face. You know, not the four spiritual laws of evangelism, whatever, but just sharing your story. And together, in community, we're going to learn these spiritual practices. We're going to walk in the way of Jesus. We're going to keep each other accountable. We're we're, we're going to say, how are we doing in this? And I believe God is going to bring change in our lives. But it's not going to happen by accident. And honestly, it's not going to be enough to just come and listen to a sermon once or twice a month. It's not going to bring change. Perhaps you've been a follower of Jesus for a long time and you feel stuck because maybe your whole spiritual formation has simply been listening to a couple podcasts a week reading the verse of the day and it's not enough and you're tired of not changing you're tired of being the same person you were five years ago so it's going to require some change and I urge you sign up for a community group do life together as together we practice the way of Jesus in our city. Let's pray. Jesus, I thank you. But God, we don't have to earn anything. On the cross, you paid for our sins. It is paid in full. 
through faith in you, we can have eternal life and, and friendship with God and adopt it into your family. But it doesn't stop there. So just, I pray for each and every one of us who feel stuck, who feel frustrated that by what we're doing hasn't been working. And so God, we wanna try something different. And together in community, we're gonna practice the ways of Jesus. We're gonna hold each other accountable. We're gonna take steps of intention to become more like you. And God, I believe that you will shape us and mold us and together as a community, we'll walk in the way of Jesus, we'll become more like you, we'll be a beacon of hope and light to this community. So God, I just pray that this year, we would take this step of faith to do life with others, walking in the way of Jesus. God, and then you would be with us and you would bring change. That we would take on your yoke that brings rest. That we'd find life, we'd find hope through you. In your name we pray, amen. Uh, just as we wrap up, I'm gonna invite Rachel Jones to come up and she's gonna lead us uh, just in a little offering talk. And, uh, and then the band's gonna wrap up in, with our last closing song.